This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It, where we discuss computing and new technology. Tonight, it's all girls on the mic, which we love here. Laura Summers, welcome. Woohoo. Woohoo. Cassie Wright. Hello. Thanks for joining us. I was just turning, nine. turning my phone off vibrate in case any Pokemon come nearby. <laughs> I have made it a minor challenge for this edition that we must try and take a photograph of some sort of Pokemon in studio. It's just, it has to be. Coming up tonight, we've got an exciting show for you. Uh, Acme are sharing the geekiest Olympic experience that you could possibly have, and it'll be open to the public, so that's exciting. And we'll learn about what Aussie startup Max Kelson are doing with data. That's later, but we've already gotten onto Pokemon, and let's face it, that's where we want to be, isn't it? Well, look, I have to admit, I didn't have any idea what was going on in Melbourne about a week ago. I was looking outside thinking, what is happening in, on the streets. <laughs> like, Burke Street Mall was... I mean, obviously, everyone spends their lives looking at their phones, but even more so than normal. Um, but, hey, did you guys see that video of Pokemon Go? And I believe it was in a major city in Japan where a whole... Like, hundreds of people walk onto a freeway because a rare Pokemon Go. <laughs> oh, my, oh, yeah, it was... It was um, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know the Pokemon... It's not Pikachu. One of, the, one of the funny little characters that you can't find very easily, apparently. And, like, they're stopping traffic, and you can just see this like massive people coming onto the freeway and you think huh that's technology vr in the real world mm, i love it mm. uh we should be careful and aware of our surroundings and mm. uh, there have been lots of warnings going out but i kind of thought people were a little bit more familiar with this sort of thing nowadays and didn't actually need those reminders we're used to walking and not walking to poles and other pedestrians Mm, or onto freeways with busy traffic. <laughs> well, there's another risk associated with Pokemon Go, which is that the latest iOS release apparently requests um, access to your entire Google account, which is quite a lot of data, as I'm sure you all have, have um, become aware. There's uh, Google tracks a lot about you and your Google account, your Google Mail, can be quite a lot of info you don't necessarily want some random app developer to have. That's true. Um, however, some of the articles I've read about this have really overstated the amount of data that, that Google would that um oh that uh nin tech nin something tech mm. uh who have done the app in collaboration with nintendo and google the amount that they can access so some people have been saying oh they can read your emails and they can do all this and that that's not actually true because that's not permission that is granted when you hand over access to your google account to a third party but there's nothing mm. like some good fear mongering though yeah. you know yeah. i mean everyone loves it you can't you can't have anything nice, <laughs> but it is good to be vigilant off our privacy settings, and I think it's good to take note of the fact that an app that is this popular could technically yeah. be opening us to vulnerabilities without us thinking twice. And a big mm -hmm. lesson for the app developer in mm -hmm. being really clear about what they're actually getting access to and not overreaching. And in this case, there definitely has been overreach in what they've asked for. Um, well, they, they actually released a statement saying that they erroneously asked for permission to the, f the user's full Google account, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted your basic Google profile, which is your user ID and email address. So that's actually a reasonably small amount of data. That's probably something you wouldn't think twice about giving but they actually, they, when they were setting up their permission settings, probably ticked a box without thinking twice. And suddenly a whole bunch of people have been like, I want this thing on my phone. And they've, they've said yes to giving giving their whole access away. Um, um, sounds a little bit Team Rocket, though. I mean, if, 
<laughs> if you played any of the games, I think in Pokemon XY, there was a storyline where someone gave a device to everyone and then used it to control everyone. So mm. just saying, just saying. That's very meta, Cassie. I love it. You're bringing us the past Pokemon knowledge as the youngest member of the team here. That's one of the things I'm enjoying about Pokemon Go the most is that exchange of expertise from a younger generation to an older generation who've never pokemon before? Well, I think it's interesting because I've... When you, when you go out and see people, it is people who are generally over 18 um, mm. that, are, that are wandering the streets. Late teens at, at the most. Uh, my little brother loves Pokemon. He's 10 years old and he would happily go hunting except he's not allowed to wander the streets by himself and also he doesn't have his own phone so um that's that's pretty common for kids too like not to have your own phone however i did notice while uh traipsing around the burbs not for pokemon reasons on the weekend (laughs) that uh that when i looked at where the poke stops were there were ones in the local primary schools and i thought that's convenient because if you know kids can't move around and don't have the the freedom that adults do Mm -hmm. at least they can plant things right there yeah, yeah, they've been crafty. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's deliberate. I'd say there's yeah. there's some intention there. Absolutely. Mm. All right. In other news this week, this was just um, a bit of a flashback to the past story, but uh, it did come out this week, and the, it's about the code that took America to America to the moon. And that code, you've probably seen a really famous photograph of it before, of one of the programmers standing next to the printed out versions of all the code and all of the books of code. Uh, taller than her so that particular code was manually like data entered into github and it's fantastic so it's like a 1960s time capsule is what they're saying the amazing thing about this code and not just that someone sat there and typed it all in by hand and then kudos to that dude because that's a shitload of time (laughs) (laughs) that would have taken him so long um but it has some really, really entertaining comments and Easter eggs. And if anyone out there is familiar with programming languages, you know that like half the time you have a lot of comments or little notes about what the code is going to do in the top of the of the body of the text. And um, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, uh, shall we say, demonstrative of the personalities of the people who are writing that code, like how serious or entertaining that may be. Um, so it's quite fun seeing this sort of thing happening from the 1960s. Um, in fact, there was uh, a file name called burn underscore baby underscore burn dash dash master underscore ignition underscore routine, which is in fact how they started their ignition. And it's a reference to a magnificent montage um, DJ who used to use the phrase burn baby burn. So there you go. These these coders were listening to this radio program. List, um, I love it. Coding. Early disco. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Early disco. And that made its way into the code that got us to the moon. This is what brings me joy when we find the musical connections that triple r listeners love and get to find those in tech we'd like to say a big welcome to nicholas thurkelson terry who is from max kelson data analytics based in brisbane welcome nick hi great to be with you great to have you on the line now you came to our attention when i was reading an article in the guardian recently and it was about um from julia gillard to hillary clinton online abuse of politicians around the world and all of the data they used to analyze um and measure different types of abuse and and try and make sense of masses of social media data was sourced from your company and i thought that's so interesting uh could you tell us a little bit about what max kelson does yeah, absolutely. Um, we've worked with Guardian on a, on a couple of projects and that's really from the side of our business that works with social media data, as you mentioned. 
we, we work with a, a range of different data from company-owned data to publicly accessible data. Um, and we also work, you know, so that can either be structured or unstructured data, and that means either the numbers in a, in a table that are easy to understand or just text. Um, and social media data is, is a huge data source. Obviously, there's masses of people talking on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram every day, um, but it is an unstructured data set, so it can be really difficult to understand. So from our point of view, that's what makes it really interesting. Absolutely. So if you could take us through maybe a bit of the work that you did on that particular article, um, because you can imagine it's it's quite challenging trying to look at online abuse and figure out what is abuse and what isn't and what counts and what doesn't. Could you talk us through some of the decision-making you had to, to go through to get meaningful data? Absolutely. So we started by just looking at the the top-level conversations around the, the key... Uh, what, the, the Guardian wanted to look at, just to step back, the Guardian wanted to look at uh, competitions within a single party. Um, so the primaries in the US, uh, the, um, the Labor uh, leader uh, uh, election in, in the UK, and, and obviously Julie Gillard and Kevin, Ru- uh, Kevin Rudd. So they wanted to remove that sort of partisanness of the conversation. Um, and so we started looking at, at the conversations around those particular contests we started just with really broad uh, filters to look for any mention of the particular politicians. And then we started to filter down onto those particular competitions. So we wanted to filter out a lot of the, the general noise from just being in, in politics. Um, and then the next step was to try and work out when someone was being abusive. And it, it's, it's harder than it sounds because especially in Australia, where people tend to use uh, profanities in general speech. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, um, you know, you can... There's a lot of noise there. So we started to build some some fairly complex maps on words that would be used in conjunction or near one another um, that would indicate that someone was being abusive versus just engaging in the debate. Uh, and then the next issue we had was to to pull out where someone will mention one leader but be abusive to the other. Um, and mm-hmm. Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard was, was a key. That happened a lot, um, that they would talk about Rudd and then say something derogative about Julia Gillard without actually mentioning her. Um, they might use a, a particular slur that was popular at the time. And so we, we needed to work out ways to indicate that split in sentiment in a, in a post. And so, again, we built some extra maps to try and tease that out and, and to remove a bunch of data from the middle that wasn't easily determinable about being directly about either party. So with these maps that you're building, do they indicate sort of um, amountness of abuse? Like, does it does it give you qualifying amounts or is it just like you're... you're um, laying it out into we think this is something which is said in jest or said in a sort of ironic way versus this is something which we think is really intended as some kind of slur or some kind of you know with with cruel intention um like how yeah. how, how do you measure that so the once it sort of got worked through each of the of the keyword maps then it would be marked as being abusive or, or not being abusive and then we just looked at the quantities of each of those buckets that came up um like i think i was mentioning before with those with the filters for abusive we were able to because the abusive content 
that we, we were able to have the cutoff relatively high because the abusive content, there's plenty of really, really abusive content out there. And so it's quite clear that it's not being said in jest. Like, it, you know, the, the kind of things that were being said were would only be said with malice. Um, and, and because of those, those quantities were so high, we were able to set the bar quite high to, to be able to be confident that that's what the, the intent of the author was. Mm-hmm. And do you find, like, working with data sets that go across different countries that um, people's tones change from continent or country to country? Like, do you, do you have different sort of bars for what, what falls into abusive versus what's considered, you know, like less, less sort of with cruel intention um, from Absolutely. U.S. to here? Yeah, definitely. Um, U.S., U.K. and Australia were all very different in, mm. in the style of language and the, the, the kind of the way that people would use abusive language. Um, and, and we find that working with, obviously, with more nuanced data of, of sort of trying to understand sentiment or understand how someone feels about a particular topic or brand, it can be much more finely tuned there because Australians really talk quite differently to mm. our... Uh, you know, UK or, or US counterparts online. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're much more brash. Uh, we swear in the in in the positive normally much more than um, especially in the US do, and so that can actually throw the models out a lot of the time. And that's been a bit of a, a problem for people in Australia doing this sort of research. That a lot of this software is developed in the US and anywhere that's sort of using a fixed way of understanding. Um, sentiment or understanding what someone's trying to say in a, in a social media post, it will generally coming to Australia be very inaccurate compared to in the US. Something really interesting I found, and obviously there's, you know, quite direct links to, to sexism and gender, and we're no stranger to that here on uh, Bite Into It. There's, there is lots of gender inequality in the tech community. But um, it was really interesting that the data broke down not only what words were used to insult uh, each each politician, um, and often for women there were quite gendered terms that were used um, as opposed to more neutral terms for men, but that gender of who was sending the abuse. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of, of what you found regarding who was being more abusive to, to whom? Definitely. So we originally just looked at the, the gender split of the people sending the posts, uh, the, the abusive posts at the end of the analysis to just do a demo makeup of them. And, and we, we had a look and, you know, sort of in Australia, it's, it's a little over 70% male um, to female. US was very similar and, and actually in Britain it was even higher, um, 83%. And we thought, well, that's, you know, that, that's strongly, you know, obviously um, one way and particularly if you take in some error on the way that demographics are calculated. So we, but then the question is, well, is, you know, is the conversation, the political conversation generally in those countries dominated by male or, or female players? Um, you know, and so is it actually worse? So we went, went back and had a look at the broad conversation and what we found consistently was that the that the, the number of males in the conversation being abusive was higher than the number of males in the conversation generally. So there is a gender split, not just in the general political conversation, which was about 60, 40, um, more, more in Britain, probably 70, 30 from memory, but actually that the, the, 
the, the abusive comments were far more likely to be sent by the male uh, side of that conversation. Mm. So, Nick, obviously Twitter has been um, a real deep lot of data for you to mine. Have you had much experience mining other types of social media platforms? Absolutely, yeah. So Twitter obviously uh, is the data scientist's best friend, <laughs> we like to call it. It's a wonderful data set. They're super open with it. So they, they give out lots and lots of data about uh, public accounts, which lets us do all sorts of fun analysis on it. But really in, a, in Australia, as we all know, that the, the vast majority of pe- people that you know maybe aren't particularly on Twitter for a reason like politics or the tech sector or, or whatever it might be, are, are really interacting day-to-day on Facebook and or, or on Instagram. And so those, those networks are really important to understand. Um, Facebook has, over the last two years, rolled out a, a product which we, we find really interesting and, and a lot of fun to play with, but it allows us to actually look at the private side of Facebook uh, in, in an anonymised way. Mm. Um, how has has access to Twitter data been changing over the time that you've been looking at it? The the access hasn't changed dramatically. Mm. So we, we have access to what's called the firehose, um, and that's a, a feed of every tweet being sent by every public profile in real time. Um, and that's been up since, um, top of my head, May 2007. Uh, so it's been around for quite a while now. Um, there's a lot of metadata that you can query from Twitter accounts, who people follow, who follows them, and those, those endpoints have been have been growing. Um, there's some some new endpoints coming on from Twitter that look at people's audiences uh, and that also look at in, in the engagement of users on the platform. So they're pushing definitely pushing the data side um, and trying to build more products there. So when you look at these data sets, Nick, does it occur to you a lot that, um, you know, obviously you're, you're measuring what can be captured in these things. Do you have much information about what you're not capturing and what proportion of a population this audience might be? Definitely. So, the, the, uh, you know, it's a huge question on social media, particularly on the more private networks like, mm. like Facebook and, and like Instagram. I mean, Facebook, the vast majority of accounts these days are in some kind of private mode yeah. and the only uh, data that you can get out of Facebook in a in a qualitative sense, in an actual, you know, pulling out the posts and who said them is what's called accounts that are called super public and they're generally owned by only by influencers, celebrities or brands. Uh, almost everyone who is a private citizen interacting on Facebook has some degree of a, a private platform that isn't accessible by the, the, the main API outputs. Uh, Instagram obviously has far more public activity than, mm-hmm. than Facebook, but it's still been an ongoing trend of people putting their accounts on private. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Instagram doesn't have as nearly a, as well-established and well-developed APIs for developers to be able to pull information out of it either. So actually the, there's not as big a privacy concerns with Instagram, mm. um, just because of the, the way the infrastructure works. And then just an add-on question to that. What about LinkedIn? Mm. Uh, uh, LinkedIn actually had an API. It's an interesting one. It had an API for a long time and it got turned off uh, a couple of years ago now and has been relatively private. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in, in the time since, hard to query. There's no real, there's an undocumented API, but there's no great API for pulling data out of it. We know that there's a, because it is quite a, a public um, platform, if you're not signed into LinkedIn, you can still get a fair bit of information out of it. So there are a few people around the world that have scraped a lot of LinkedIn, um, so just web scraped it. Mm. Uh, my understanding is that there, there's a data product coming in that space, um, but that's that's sort of all, all we know at this stage. Mm. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of data analysis you do when you start talking about the private or the corporate data that's owned that's that's not available through social media? Like, what kinds of analysis and insights are you guys looking for? And um, is it is it about organizations? Is it about culture? Or is it about other other sort of more corporate concerns? So, I, I mean, there's heaps of analysis that can be done on, on corporate known data. And it, it's funny, the, the first time you, you deal with a client normally or someone that hasn't had a, a data analytics firm, you know, you'll, you'll have lots of ideas and generally they'll go, but what, are, you know, who are my customers? What are their demographics? You know, <laughs> um, but lots of companies are really advanced in the way that they're using data and, and they're using data to identify customers at certain decision points uh, in, their, in their life cycle based on, you know, piece of information they collect along the way. Um, they, they might, you know, there's a lot of analysis going into sort of picking the, the point of diminishing returns on different advertising or different outreach programs. Uh, and then across into the, the unstructured space, there's a lot of work in text analytics and, and looking at customer interactions and understanding them from a really top-level view. Mm. Hey, Nick, it's just a, a little area of interest for me with the amount of massive uh, whistleblowing kind of stories that have mm. been out in the last few years. I wonder, have you had any work in that space where people have been trying to identify or, or risk manage um, that, that type of vulnerability before it happens? Definitely. Um, there's... The, the sector in is obviously has had a number of, of high profile as you as you noted leaks um, the, the the last of which being the Panama Papers which were you know very embarrassing to a lot of people uh, and not only that but but the you know cyber attacks and um, security breaches by outsiders are increasing and you know there's been some again very very high profile hacks of data out of um, various and major corporations. If we think about the Sony hack, which mm. was a few years ago now, but enormous. And so there's those of the concern that first being the building security that is better and faster than the people that are trying to beat it from the outside, but then having really strict and transparent and traceable uh, interactions with their internal data and there's uh, kind of the next step from company data at the moment in Australia and, and around the world is companies sharing data and so this is where companies will, will share their data sets with other companies and it's all de-identified but obviously that those sort of interactions have uh, enormous concern about uh, privacy and ownership uh, and how much information gets handed over as well. Mm. 
Nick, it's been fascinating hearing about the sort of work that uh, a little Aussie startup is doing and it's great to know that we've got this capability in Australia. I do hope that we get to hear a bit more about some of your case studies in the future as well. So uh, keep us keep us in the loop. Uh, we have just been joined in studio by Ari and Emily from Acme. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, we've, been, we've had a bit of a serious show, but it's time to let our hair down and have a bit of fun because you're here to tell us about Retro Olympiad. Now, what could that possibly be? Well, uh, we were a little bit inspired by the upcoming Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, so we thought, what better way to celebrate the upcoming Olympic Games than with a night of retro-inspired gameplay? Um, but not just that, we're going to be having live music. We've got a live DJ set by the Midnight Juggernauts, and the whole night's going to be hosted by their very hilarious um, Andy Matthews and Al um, Trembley Birchall, which are just hilarious comedians. And uh, there'll be great food and drinks as well. Excellent. Now, the first time I heard about this, I got super excited and I thought, Winter Olympics, the luge. And then I went, oh, no, it's not Winter Olympics inspired. (laughs) So what sort of games might we experience? Sure. So the idea behind the event is actually to take you back to those nostalgic button bashing days. So we've got a whole range of the classics, everything going from uh, Konami's track and field right through the the epic and epics California game series. Excellent. We love that one. (laughs) And a whole lot of sort of... uh, novelty titles as well, so things like the Caveman Games or Caveman Olympics. So we're featuring a range of arcade machines in there as well, as along as a whole lot of stations where you'll be able to test out all of your nostalgic favourites and uh, get your fingers into gear. Is there going to be any Donkey Kong for us Donkey Kong lovers? <laughs> I actually think that might be an option on one of our arcade machines, although oh. we are trying to focus a little bit more on those sort of competitive Olympic-style titles of from course. back of yesteryear. Well, you could make it into a competition amongst the participants and then call it an Olympic game. I'm yeah. sure, well, like, yeah. you know, barrel throwing one of these days, it'll happen. That's exactly right. Go a little bit King of Kong on that. Yeah, exactly. Laura, you're just dying for your chance for gold. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got the, the spirit. Can you see my crazy eyes. (laughs) We all want to get on that Twin Galaxies board one day. Mm, Absolutely. So um, when you tried to put this night together, what got you inspired on the music front? You know, you haven't gone with a, a chip musician here. So I was just wondering, you know, where you started thinking? Well, we're really more channeling the whole nostalgic vibe, as yeah. Ari said. So we were more thinking about, hmm, how can we tap into the, the event-seeking music crowd and, and channel that 80s vibe, but in a cool, like, essentially Melbourne way, <laughs> for want of a better word. So um, what better way than someone like Midnight Juggernauts, who, you know, they definitely have a sense of humour and they're up for kind of channeling the sort of tragic slash amazing 80s vibes that we're really wanting to tap into for this event. So they're doing our two DJ sets as part of the night. Nice. So whenever we go to Acme exhibitions, we're used to it being a a very pleasing assault on many senses. So it's not usually just something that you touch, but it's something that you listen and something that you you look at. What have you got in terms of um, artwork in this exhibition? Sure. So we've actually been really lucky to actually uh, work in collaboration with uh, Rubber House and Ivan Dixon, who've done that amazing 8-bit Simpsons piece. And they've actually created some unique artwork for the event. So a range of gifts and also um, a static artwork around the area. So yeah, no, yeah, they've done an amazing job with it and it does look fantastic. It fits the vibe really, really well. It gets you into yeah. that, that, that yeah. pixel retro vibe. <laughs> I was going to say, you might you might have seen that great sort of pixel trailer that's been doing the rounds, but mm. we have the slow motion runner, pixel art runner in there. So it's, it's doing it's the rounds pleasing. on YouTube at the moment. Yeah, for people <laughs> like me who that's a bit more my childhood vibe, <laughs> it's super pleasing. <laughs> 
Uh, do you imagine this will be a family-friendly event or is it going to be 18 plus? Sure. So it, it is an 18 plus event uh, because we have worked in conjunction with Pixel Alley to actually create a fantastic range of uh, 8-bit and pixel-themed cocktails for the night. What? Why is this not in the media? <laughs> well, it's sure. actually just in the last couple of days. So, so we actually had a meeting today and they're going to tailor two special cocktails just for this event. Mm. So we were bashing out a few names at the moment, like whether it's, um, you know, well, I, I can't give them away. So you're just, you're just, yeah. <laughs> you'll just have I'm to stay I'm going to leak it right there and there, but you're going to have to stay tuned. And come but to they, the event. Uh, come to the event and they are making two special uh, bubble cup cocktails. Yeah. Right. All I've, all I've got to say is, guys, if you want to borrow my Space Invaders ice cube tray, <sighs> then you're welcome to it. <laughs> I it's... actually have one of those as well. They're pretty amazing. <laughs> They're pretty amazing. Well, it's a, it's a shame to hear that, that kids won't be getting involved, but I think that kids would find our 8-bit experiences a little bit frightening these days. <laughs> I think so. But look, I think it's going to be a great event because it's it's got a little bit of something for everyone. So it's not just for hardcore gamers. You you can come along and get as competitive as you like. So we will have competitive sessions up there on the big um, light well screen. But we'll also have a, a range of things for people to be able to do if you just want to come along, hang out with your mates and interact with a bit of that nostalgic vibe, whether it's playing a few games, having a couple of drinks, or, or attending the DJ sets. Now, where can people find out more? So you can just head to our Acme website, um, to our events page, and uh, all the details are there. You can buy tickets online. And when is the event happening? So happening on July 23rd, so not this Saturday night, but the Saturday coming up after that so one. So we've given people plenty of time to get in there and book tickets and uh, dream about the bubble tea cocktails. Yeah. And, and to put their training mm. regime together. Mm. And, exactly. And, and to Start buy stretching now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, we can't have you guys in, hip people who know about games from Acme, without talking about the games news of the week, Pokemon Go. Mm. Are we Pokemon Go players? I've downloaded I haven't started playing it as yet. I have read about the immense uh, list of safety risks of uh, people stepping onto traffic, uh, doing it whilst driving, whilst their partners are giving birth. Um, <laughs> oh, there you go. Emily, but, uh, too serious, too busy working on this amazing Acme event to try Pokemon Go yet. Ari? And um, unfortunately, I'm still a little bit too sucked into the Pocket Mortys game, so I have not, I've yet to give Pokemon Go a try. I've, I've yet to complete my collection of Mortys from the Rick and Morty world for that so one. So people who don't know the, the Rick and Morty world, and, and I know the Rick and Morty world, but I didn't know about the game. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So it's a Pokemon-inspired game that actually has you collecting Mortys from all of the different dimensions and are battling them against each other. And it definitely oh. features a lot of that Rick and Morty humour like that, that's in, in every single scene oh, in the game. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. I can't mm. do it, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty cute. <laughs> Super cute. Excellent. I think uh, what we've all heard tonight is that these guys are too cool for our show and <laughs> they're too cool for Pokemon Go. So there was a bit of news we didn't get to cover at the top of the show tonight and something that caught my eye was about digital currency Steam, so S-T-E-E-M. And uh, it just, it's interesting because it's a currency completely behind a social media website as a motivator for people to contribute content to a platform. And they've only just released the first lot of rewards to Steam, Steam it users. And uh, the currency has soared a thousand percent in value in two weeks because it's really been a successful motivator of people to to interact with the side and to trade things and 
yeah, it's just kind of fascinating to see different sorts of incentives for making content. I find it really interesting because it flips the business model completely on its head. Like traditionally, we share things in our data and our the stuff that we generate is what is a value and it's a value for marketing purposes, it's a value for data mining. But in this case, people are being incentivized to actually produce content and they're being rewarded for producing content and or um, interacting with other users on the site. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a really fascinating model. Um, I, I'd be curious to know like what the ultimate monetization goal is. Like how do you, yeah. obviously like what, where, where sort of like the final value in terms of how the business is gonna generate capital. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, just wanted to keep an eye on, steam it. Mm. Um, another another topic, um, which this actually happened a couple of weeks ago now with all the joy that was Brexit, but I thought it was worth mentioning is that Bitcoin, which has been really not that stable in the past couple of months, but had a moment, a brief shining moment of glory just after Brexit, where its volatility dropped below that of the UK pound, which is just such a random moment in history. But at that time, when all the investors were looking for any currency other than the pound to invest in, Bitcoin had its shining moment in the sun and actually was more successful in terms of improving its volatility. So yeah, go Bitcoin. And of course, there's there's several um, other uh, currency, um, cryptocurrency uh, competitors out there in the market. So not just Bitcoin, but mm. you know. Have any of you guys uh, used the Bitcoin ATM that's in the Emporium in the city? I don't have any bitcoins. Yeah, there must so be a few around. I probably don't have enough to, to withdraw. N- it's not because mm. I'm tech savvy. It's because I'm poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, fair enough. Yeah. I'm always quite fascinated when people, when I see people near that machine and I, I mm. almost, I want to invade their privacy and talk to them about, <laughs> hey, what are you using it for? And do you like it? And do you find it useful? But Turn that machine into a poker stop and yeah. then, then I'll be there. I don't want to be that girl. <laughs> well, I, sorry, go. Oh, no. I was going to say the thing that, that Bitcoin is traditionally strong for is for paying for things that online that you wouldn't maybe necessarily want people to know about. So when you want some privacy around that interaction, say, for instance, you wanted to support Julian Assange or someone who's making WikiLeaks happen, you could you could try and send some money and no one can know that it's happening or that it's, it's not going to be regulated by any federal government. So, mm. you know, I don't think of it as really being a currency for the real world anyway. Like, I don't know why you want to take money out again. You necessarily want to use it online for... Yeah. purposes that are um, needing privacy. Yeah. However, you know, in Melbourne, there's plenty of cafes that you can go to and just get a coffee and a sandwich. That's true. Maybe I want some privacy around my order. Right? I don't <laughs> want anyone knowing when Sorry, I'm cheating. <laughs> uh, speaking of overseas news, though, with Brexit, there's actually in Washington, the state of Washington in uh Washington DC Fire and EMS Department has said that they're planning to use Uber to transport low priority emergency callers, um, which is which is interesting, I think, to think about from our perspective, because often in our current political climate, what America does, we try and follow. Um, so the mm. reason behind this is to take some of the load off the ambulances and paramedics and actually have a triage system where if something's considered low priority, but you still need to get to a hospital, you still call 911, which is their triple zero, uh, you get an Uber sent to you that's that's specially equipped to, to get you to the hospital on time. Interestingly enough, even before reading this story, I'd seen a lot of comments from people who live in America 
telling people, please get an Uber to the hospital, even in an emergency, because it's so much cheaper than an ambulance. Wow. Because they mm. have, they don't have the healthcare that we have. Mm. Um, I have seen news stories of, hey, pregnant mother, you know, yeah, gets get, Uber to hospital. Because mm. they, because they simply can't afford it. The thing that um, I was reading an article on TechCrunch and the issues that it brings up when a government's actually leading people to get ride-sharing services to a hospital and emergency services is that you, the ride-sharing drivers don't have that level of emergency expertise. If someone mm. deteriorates quickly, if someone thinks they've broken their ankle but they're actually going into shock or, you know, there's an underlying cause of diabetes or, or whatever, mm. um, you've you've got the trained paramedic there for a reason and now by having a, having a ride-sharing driver in there instead that could be certain problems. But I think... Um, it's it's definitely a way to use something innovative and um, latch on to different forms of technology. And I think it's something we should keep an eye on in Australia as well. I mean, now we've got Uber Eats in a lot of places. Um, we've, we've got different things that we can do with these services. So it's good to keep an eye on it and to see if, if any if emergency stuff will move in. I don't think so because we've got different coverage uh, when it comes to that, but nice to know what's going on. Mm. Um, I'll be interested to see how that goes in the U.S. model. Um, certainly, if it takes you 15 minutes in an Uber versus 45 minutes in a, in a traditional ambulance model, it's probably worth it for the time savings to get to you know primary care faster anyway. Um, and certainly, they have they have areas of cities that are very very overloaded, very very much not dealing with the current demand. So, um, if it could ease that, that that might make make sense. Um, and like to be fair, I find that driving with Ubers is often a much nicer, more peaceful, more enjoyable experience. So if you're in pain, if you're unhappy, like if you're under stress, maybe going with someone who's, you know, relaxed and enjoying their job is a nicer outcome than going with someone who's like super stressed and not dealing with the pressure and the amount of workload that they're under. If you were set apart as an emergency Uber and they said mm. they might have to be equipped with lights and stuff, maybe mm. the driver's would be a little bit more stressed. Yeah. And that's, that's a totally fair call. Like the culture would definitely change. It, obviously, if you have emergency lights, if you're dealing with people who are really unwell, like of course the culture of the kinds of services you're providing changes. Also the ambulance um, services that I've seen have been really impeccable. I mean, the crisis management, the cool under pressure, the getting the right type of uh, you know personalities mm. and, and mm. skills in that area to to really, you know, make you feel comfortable in a, in a stressful situation. Uh, I think our uh, ambulance service do yeah. an amazing job. Mm. I don't know that you'd treat a car with flashing lights going down the street the same way you'd treat an ambulance. Yep. But mm. uh, look, I don't even think this has ever come up in Australia. So let's just hope that this is just a real edge case and, and another wacky US health story. We can put it in that box, maybe. We're really lucky here. <laughs> we hope yeah. it doesn't come here. We hope we stay safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. A mm. uh, couple of events that would be nice to get to, but mm. um, or do we want to do a weird news of the week? Oh, I love the weird news of the week this week. It's so funny. Um, so Warren um, sent us something. Laura, do you have it to hand? Oh, well, there's, there is this little island just off of Iceland and they've been waiting for Google Street View. And because <laughs> they've been waiting and because there's a lot of, shall we say, farmland and not a lot of cities and people, they came up with their own version, which is Sheep View. <laughs> <laughs> it's very adorable. It's some GoPros mounted on sheep and taking photos 
of beautiful oh my god <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty entertaining we can tweet tweet the um links out later for it's you like guys a, to enjoy a but. very idyllic um, Björk video clip. Yes, yeah. yes, and just the same sense of absurdism and humor. <laughs> well, why shouldn't you be using sheep for 360 cameras? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good question, and like watching the footage, it really is pretty entertaining. And well, look, I have to say, you know, like I think we take our tech very seriously here at Bite, but I think it's fun <laughs> to enjoy it too. Right? Like you, it's sheep for you. I like look, it. It's, let's let's get some motion stabilizers on that. And, yeah, know, maybe think, a little I, bit of shock absorption going on. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There's um. There's some incremental improvements we can roll out. <laughs> Excellent find, Warren. Good work. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being here even when you're not here. A uh, couple of events. So uh, there is an evening coming up with Dr Alan Finkel, AO, who's Australia's chief scientist. And that's going to be Thursday the 28th of July at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. He's going to share some insights and reflections on Australia's place Excuse me. In the ever-changing science, technology and research landscapes, it is free but bookings are required, which is why we're telling you about it in enough time to, to get on board with that. So uh, we will tweet out a link, but if you if you um, Google uh, Dr. Alan Finkel AO and uh, check out Eventbrite, you'll find the event. Um, another event coming up is is um, a classic. It happens every year. It is GovHack 2016 this year. It is a hackathon for people, hackers, designers, doers, makers of all stripes to come together and try and make something useful out of the open data sets available um, from the government services, everything from City of Melbourne through to federal government data sets that are available. Um, if you have an innovative, innovative mind, enjoy hackathons and want to win some great prizes, it is definitely worth checking out. Um, and that's on Friday, 29th of July to Sunday, the 31st of July. Um, and you can check it out on Gov hack.org all right we'd love to say a big thank you for you tuning in to us tonight and thanks to our guests nicholas thurkelson terry emily siddons and ari offman thanks also to andy who's catching us up on podcasts at the moment so if you're waiting for some of those please be patient with us we're getting onto it we are the tech show we get behind in our podcasts <laughs> <laughs> thanks to cassie and laura for being my co-host this evening and uh do stay tuned this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 f in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.